This episode is brought to you in partnership with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. They are fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, cbtseminary.org. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of interviewing Gavin Ortland and Gavin, would you just introduce yourself to our to our audience? Say a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah, great to be with you guys. Um, yeah, I'm a pastor in a town called Ojai in California. It's about 80 miles northwest of Los Angeles, near uh, Ventura and Oxnard in that area. And uh, I'm married. I have four kids, and my interest in terms of writing, researching, uh, especially is in church history, historical theology. So the book we're going to talk about today is about St. Augustine and his doctrine of creation. Yeah, and and you mentioned it. We're, we're going to talk about your book, Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. Can you tell us what got you interested in this topic and, and why you wrote the book? Sure, yeah. Um, I think for me, Uh, Creation has always been a topic where I felt a little bit of angst, and uh, I've just been aware of that for two reasons. One is that there's a lot of uh, feuding and a lot of suspicion within the church. In fact, even more so than other doctrines on which Christians disagree, it seems to me, at least in many circles, I know this isn't true of, of everyone, but certainly in the United States, in evangelical circles, in many, many places, there's just a lot of uh, sort of warfare that takes place and, and hard boundaries that are drawn in relation to this issue. And then outside the church, I see it as a major apologetics issue. Um, it is at least right or wrong. It's at least perceived to be an area of conflict between science and faith, so-called. And so um, whatever our views on that, we've got to help our non-Christian friends and neighbors who see this as a stumbling block. So this has always been a topic that's of importance to me. And I've just found, to my great surprise, that church history has something to say to this that it is really, I think, really important. Um, and St. Augustine especially, I know we'll, we'll get into some of the details of this in the interview, but just to mention a few things. Creation was one of the most foundational doctrines for him. Um, he agonized over creation. He he treated it as an emotional doctrine, which is kind of interesting, and we can talk about why he felt that way. Um, and I would go so far as to say all of the anxieties and all of the struggles that we face today in relation to the doctrine of creation were anticipated in some way by Augustine, which is not to say that he faced them in the exact same way. But nonetheless, on some level, he anticipated them. And Augustine is a pretty major figure. You know, uh, if you had to pick one theologian who's been most influential, I think Augustine would be the best candidate. He's had an absolutely massive influence. He's perhaps the, the greatest of the church fathers in terms of his influence and his just stature as a theologian. So the fact that he's faced a lot of these questions before us makes him really helpful to engage. Not that he's infallible or that we have to agree with him on everything, but he just is a helpful voice to consider. And I think it's an act of humility to consider what others have thought, especially those who live in different times and different places and therefore might approach things a little bit differently. So for me, Augustine has been a huge help, and I'm just very passionate to um, encourage others to consider how he might be helpful for them as well. Well, thank you for that. Um, as we continue this conversation, can you give us a sketch of Augustine's life and spiritual journey? And why does this help us understand his doctrine of creation? 
Sure. And I just, as I finished my last answer, I just realized I forgot to even mention kind of the specifics of the book, which we'll probably mention another time too, but I'll just share. Uh, the, the book is about Augustine's doctrine of creation. It's called Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy. So, um, but uh, yes. Okay. So Augustine lived from 354 to 430, uh, late fourth century, early fifth century, kind of as the Roman empire is, is waning. Um, and when he was there, there's lots I'll skip over here, but just a few things that are relevant for creation, his view of creation. When he was 17 years old, he left, uh, he had been raised as a Catholic Christian. His mother was a very godly woman. Uh, when he was 17 years old, he went to Carthage, which was a bigger city to study rhetoric. And um, he basically kind of fell in with, a very hedonistic lifestyle, um, and also with a kind of academic ambition. So, you know, his story is very comparable to many people today who, when they're 18, or he, he was just a little younger than people are generally when they go to college, and sometimes struggle with doubts about their faith or even reject their faith and kind of get into the party scene when they're in college. And sometimes I've observed the, um, the those kinds of struggles, kind of the hedonistic lifestyle partying kinds of struggles coincide with intellectual doubts. And Augustine was exactly like that. He faced both of those, but his pull away from the Christian faith was toward what's called Manichaeism, which was a different religious sect that among many other things, criticized Genesis chapter one for being too um, uh, literalistic. They had a very literalistic reading of it, and they criticized it, for example, for pronouncing that creation is good. And they said, look at all the evils that are in our world. And to uh, to sort of cut to the chase, Augustine came to see Genesis 1 as incompatible with the most rigorous intellectual belief system that he could find. And he, he didn't see Christianity as credible. Now, there's many pieces to that. It wasn't just Genesis 1. It was also the the moral character of the patriarchs and other things in the Bible too. But Genesis 1 was very important for him. And for 10 years, he became a Manichaean. And he was very devoted to that uh, religious view. Uh, in I think the year 384, I might be getting that a little bit wrong, but I think it was 384, he came to a city called Milan and he heard another one of the church fathers that we regard who was older than him at this time named Ambrose um, preach on Genesis 1, and also he just became a friend of Ambrose's. And he was really impressed with him, and a number of factors converged that ultimately, if, uh, a short time after that, led him back to faith in Christ. And one of the pieces of that process was he came to see that Genesis 1 could be interpreted in a less literalistic manner. And that removed the intellectual stumbling block that was in his mind for um, accepting Christianity. And, and obviously that has different uh, nuances than what we see people struggling with today. But my personal belief is that it has a lot of similarities as well. And that there's many people who reject the Christian faith based on a misunderstanding in which various passages, but including Genesis 1, um, are seen in their most literalistic way. And especially what's important is there it's not perceived that there's actually other ways to read that passage within orthodoxy. So they tend to associate one interpretation of this passage with the Christian view. Um, and so uh, for Augustine, that was a key moment in his journey back to to orthodoxy. So there's a lot else about his life that we could share, but those are some of the most interesting points for me in thinking about how he evolved in his thinking about creation. And by the way, subsequent to that, then he went on to write five different commentaries on Genesis. If you include his treatments of Genesis in City of God and Confessions, and also lots of sermons, also lots of treatment of it in his other works and creation was a hugely important topic for him, both emotionally at an existential level, as well as for his theology. 
Um, this next question, it, it kind of gets at something you alluded to earlier in your answer to the first question, but why is it helpful to consult Christians in the past in modern debates? And why is theological retrieval vital for theology today? Okay, I'll give two reasons for that from my perspective of why I think there's great value in theological retrieval, which simply means learning from the theology of the the church, particularly areas of theology that may have fallen by the wayside a little bit and we're trying to draw back into visibility. One is specific to creation, and that is, and perhaps a few other issues as well, and that is that pre-modern theologians, if the people were, were retrieving go back that far, um, can't be accused of a bias of capitulating to modern scientific discoveries because they predated those discoveries and they had no reason to know anything about, say, evidence for the age of the universe or something like that. So they give us a sort of um, a check or a, a kind of uh, a test for how a Christian might approach these chapters uh, without that without being in the context we find ourselves, where there's a lot of warfare and a lot of polarization. And so I just think that's useful to know. Uh, one of the claims that's sometimes made is that everybody read Genesis 1 the same way until modern science began to put pressure on those convictions. And that's when people began to consider this text differently. And I, I just, as a someone whose training is in historical theology, I've just discovered that that isn't true. Uh, Christians had different views of Genesis 1 all throughout church history. All the modern variations of reading this chapter are anticipated in pre-modern Christianity. Augustine is a great reflection of that fact. And I think that's useful to know as we try to interpret this section of God's word today. Um, the second reason I would just say is more general, and that is that because God has brought us not as individuals to himself, but also uh, as a corporate body, the church to himself. And when we come to Christ, we are brought into this spiritual family. Um, we need to uh, consider the voices of others within the family of God as we seek to serve him, follow him in all areas of life. And that would include our thinking and our theology. And the church includes people, not just who are alive today, so just as we want to not be a lone ranger Christian who never interacts with Christians today, we also don't want to be cut off from Christians who came before because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, therefore, Jesus has been at work for 2000 years, preserving and building up his church. And we can learn from those voices that came before. I have a different book on theological retrieval specifically, and I give three metaphors for why it can be useful that just come out of my own experience. This isn't something that is theory for me. This is something I've really just come to believe in from, from doing it and reading old theology. One of the metaphors is going to school. The second metaphor is uh, uh, traveling to a different culture, a different country. And the third is going to a counselor to get perspective on a, a family issue you have or something like that or a personal problem. Those are three metaphors they kind of get at, you know, education, cultural enlargement, um, an objective perspective on your own family dynamics. Those are just metaphors of getting at where I have found the voices of the past, precisely because they're so different from us and they have different questions, different struggles and so forth, can be a helpful aid to us in doing theology and I would say in many other ways as well. Um, this next question may help our listeners as we continue to engage Augustine in uh, creation. But briefly, what is the modern creation debate in case any of our listeners are unaware? Okay. Um, well, there's there's much that, that is debated about creation today. But in uh, Protestant, especially evangelical Protestant circles, especially say, in the United States and Western Europe and Canada and places like that, and also other places in the world, um, the main issues concern how old is the world, 
How literally do we interpret Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapters 2 and 3? And I suppose more more broadly from even that, Genesis 1 through 11. Um, how do we respond to the claims of evolutionary science? Um, those kinds of questions. I mean, there's other things that come in as well. What does it mean to be made in God's image? What does it mean that God made the world from nothing? But a lot of those things tend to have more consensus among Christians, but there's a lot of division. You might say there's three broad camps, perhaps, although there's there's more nuances within each camp. So you could um, give a taxonomy of views that is more than just three. But three of the broad camps might be called young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and evolutionary creationism or theistic evolution. So young earth creationism is the view that the days are 24 hours in Genesis, and therefore the world is six to 10,000 years old. And, um, you know, the dinosaurs lived very recently and got onto the ark with Noah and so forth. Um, this view holds that all animal death, or most animal death actually, is after the fall of Adam and Eve. So that's one of the important things that come up comes up is what do we do with animal death? Is that before the fall or after? Old earth creationism thinks the world is very, very old, typically 13 billion years plus a little bit um, that's for the universe. And that um, uh, God's been in a process of creating that's taken huge stretches of time, but it hasn't been evolution. And so old earth creationists believe that evolutionary mechanisms can't explain all that we see in nature, and that it's been a process of God stepping in, intervening to supernaturally create. Um, and different old earth creationists will be different in terms of how exactly they'd understand that, how much evolution they might be open to. And then people who believe in evolution believe that this was the the way that God has chosen to create. And that so there you have different views within that camp on like Adam and Eve. There are evolutionary creationists who believe in Adam and Eve. And sometimes people are surprised that it's been not just the uh, Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, but lots of uh, conservative Protestants who've been in this camp, like C.S. Lewis would be in this camp. Billy Graham was open to this view. John Stott would be a good example of this. And uh, Stott would be a good example of someone who believes in Adam and Eve and a historical fall. So, um, it's not the case that if you believe in evolution, necessarily you take Genesis 2 and 3 as just a myth or something like that. Some people believe that as a historical account. They just think that evolution is the point up to humanity. And typically, though this there's lots of different views, they think that Adam and Eve were not created from thin air or de novo from scratch, but at least one of them was a hominin, which is like a pre-human animal that God sort of refurbished in some way or, or drew into this special place called the Garden of Eden. So those are three of the common camps. And it's, uh, it, there's a lot of contention about this. Um, you know, the, this is not a, this is not necessarily always a pleasant debate. There's a, there's a lot of, um, tension about it. So, and it's very important because it concerns things like, how do we understand the entrance of sin into our world? And what does the Bible mean when it says that death came to be through sin and things like that? So that's just an overview and feel free to press me on any of this too. Yeah, I think that's that's a good overview as far as I understand the debate. And I think you're exactly right that the debate can become very, very hostile and very hot, very quick between people of differing positions. And and I, I think you're also right in the book, and, and you make this point on more than one occasion by, by studying folks like Augustine, it might help us to get away from the hotness and ask different questions because Augustine was asking different questions. So with that in mind, what questions of creation does Augustine ask that are often ignored in the modern debate? Okay, I, I would say one example would be um, Augustine has a whole a, a broader framework for creation as a whole. He sees creation sometimes today. Creation is seen as just kind of a preamble to theology. It's not really doing all that much in terms of the influence it exerts on the rest of our theology, and it's we kind of hurry past it to get to the things that we see as more important. 
But Augustine has a, a very robust appreciation for how much creation, the doctrine of creation as a whole, plays such a foundational role in the whole of our theology. And, um, you know, that leads him to, for example, the way he just um, is exuberant in his praise for God because of the animal kingdom and because of flowers and because of stars and because of trees. And I was just personally appreciative of this, being someone who loves watching nature documentaries and loves going to the zoo and have often thought myself of just what a stimulus it is for worship, just the, the, the wonder of what God has made. Um, and it's kind of fun to see this really smart theologian just not ashamed to just glory in creation and, and be exuberant in his praise for God for creation. And then that plays out in so many practical ways. You know, I think sometimes the reason modern Christians don't have as a high a view of the arts or as robust an understanding of vocation and calling, you know, sometimes we have this sacred secular distinction in which being a pastor or missionary is more important to God than being a painter or architect, or teacher, or lawyer, or professional athlete, or whatever. And I think having a, I think sometimes that's the result of having a weak or anemic doctrine of creation. Because when Adam was created before the fall, he was naming the animals. He was given tasks by God. And uh, I think having a stronger view of creation would help us with our understanding of vocation and, and, and just seeing the dignity of all work and the, the value of all work. So there's lots of practical playouts like that. I think another example would be Augustine understands creation to be imperfect. And he has this view of creation as kind of in a dynamic state where it's clinging to God and all the whole physical universe is in this state of need continually deriving its reality from God because God is the source of all things. And he sees all of creation as kind of longing to share in God's permanence. And it sounds kind of strange maybe to, to modern people to think like that. But uh, even if someone doesn't agree with Augustine about that, it's really interesting to consider that. You know, he, he, he sees, it kind of widens your vision of creation. What it did for me is it helped me see how non-necessary creation is because we tend to just take it for granted that here's the world and here we all are and augustine is always saying you know the only reason it's here is because god is very generous he did not need to make this universe he was perfectly happy in the trinity all by himself but out of the overflow of his love out of the overflow of generosity he willed to create and he it only continues in existence because he sustains it through his providence and upholds it. And if at any moment he didn't, it would just collapse into non-existence. And actually thinking that through actually is very relevant for how your theology goes and also just for how you understand yourself as a creature. Um, sometimes we don't have as much of a category for ourselves as God's creatures. We think of ourselves as sinful and as needing redemption, and those are kind of our categories. So everything is about sanctification. But a that, that's good, but Augustine has a, a bigger category of also thinking, well, we're also creatures. And so that has implications for how we think about our bodily existence. You know, why, why is sleep and exercise a matter that's important for your sanctification? And what does it mean to honor God in the way we live as a bodily creature and not taking our physicality as, as a non-important part of our existence? Um, and then there's so many other things that unfold from that. So we're just scratching the surface with this. I try to get at it a little more in chapter one. Um, but you know, there's so much to it. And the big thing is whatever camp a Christian is in on creation, the, the truth is we have so much more in common than we have at odds. Even if, if, if one person believes the world is 7,000 years old or 9,000 years old, the other person believes it's 13 billion years old. Well, that's a big difference, but it just concerns the time scale. Both people believe the world is finite, and it, it didn't always exist. It came into being, and that already unites us against a lot of alternative worldviews. Um, and, and so it's helpful to see that. Actually, our disagreements come in this larger context of agreement about some pretty foundational things.
Amen to to all of that. Um, in chapter two, you show how Augustine exemplifies and calls us to humility in our pursuit of truth in general, but particularly with creation. And when I first started reading Augustine, I mean, I, I started with confessions, but in the class I took on him at Southern, um, we, we also talked about his doctrine of the Trinity, and I observed how how humble he was in approaching that doctrine and the mystery of the Trinity. And I, I agree that, that we need humility in theology. We need a retrieval of that. And can you flesh out how this virtue particularly manifests in Augustine's doctrine of creation and how it can help inform the modern debate? Sure, this is a fun one for me to talk about because it had such an impact upon me when I was reading Augustine. Uh, I did not expect to encounter such humility from this great theologian. And chapter two is all about this in the book, and there's so much to it. But just to give a couple examples, one is the way he's very happy to not know everything. And he's very happy to offer provisional answers. So very frequently when I'm reading through I give a very careful read to five of his books and then a faster read to a lot of others. But one of the ones I give a very careful read to is his literal commentary on Genesis. And man, he just over and over and over again, he'll lay out a couple of different interpretative options for how to understand a particular verse. And let's say he gives four options and he'll say something like, I think the answer is one. I know the answer is not number two, but it could be three or four also. So take your pick, but don't go down pathway two, you know, like that. He does things like that where he's, he's basically leaving, leaving it open. He's not insisting upon his own instincts. A lot of times it seems as though in the church, it's like, especially sometimes pastors and other leaders, we just aren't very quick to admit what we don't know. And we feel like we need to have an answer for everything. And many times I mean, there's so much to the world that we don't know. So many times what might be most helpful to our people as we try to model good theology is simply saying, well, here, I don't know the answer to that, but here's how I think about it. Or here's how I'd go about finding the answer. Or here's how I, I go about living in light of the fact that I don't have an answer. Um, we don't have to have everything figured out. And Augustine is uh, so free to admit what he doesn't know and he'll frequently kind of go through the other. Another example is not just leaving things open, but the attitude that comes through. You get the sense he's trembling his way through. You know, he, he's saying lots of things like, I'm happy to be corrected. Um, he's frequently uh, exposing the danger of being rash. So as I'm going through the literal commentary, I start to notice this word rashness, and it's the Latin word temeritas. And I start to see it so often that I start circling it every time I see it. And all it seems like almost every time when he's canvassing these different options, what he comes back to is he says, just don't be rash. And by that, he means don't just arrogantly assert your opinion. Um, do your homework, work hard, think, pray, study, listen to other Christians. He has a lot of respect for the idea that we don't see everything on our own. We need other people to help us. We all have blind spots. None of us are totally accurate in all of our views and our instincts. And so he's always warning against rashness. And I think he modeled that, not, not, not to say perfectly. And I know he's not stereotypically necessarily always seen as a very humble person. But I think he, he, he was humble. He's so eager. It's not that he's apathetic about the truth. He's eagerly pursuing the truth. But he's just very okay with admitting what he doesn't know in the process. And what he, he really emphasizes the main thing. So what he'll often do is say, here's the rule of faith, which is the an older term for the boundaries of the kind of core issues that make orthodoxy. You could think of this as roughly amount, tantamount to like the, the Apostles' Creed or something like that. Maybe the Apostles and Nicene and Athanasian creeds together. This is the rule of faith, this basic core commitment. He'll frequently say... Um, if it's in the rule of faith, be fixed, be immovable, we are called to believe this. But if it's outside the rule of faith, if it's a more matter of judgment on which Christians can disagree, you have to be much more careful and be very slow and methodical in how you navigate on those issues. 
Not that you never have a view, but you're just much more careful. So humility didn't mean just general wishy-washiness for him because he's so rock solid on the rule of faith. And he'll frequently say, it's not humble to question those things. It's not a sign of humility. He also has a very high view of scripture. He sees scripture as having divine authority not to be questioned, not to be trifled with. But in terms of our interpretation of scripture, that's just what I think we need so badly today in the church. We seem to think that we just, so often I, I've heard people navigate in this way of you read it in an English translation and you think you come to a conclusion of how it just seems to you and then you're just certain. And Augustine is a voice to say, we just need to be very, very careful to know our fallibility as interpreters. And I just, it's a simple point, but I think it's so practically useful today. Yeah, I've, I've found that that point and that virtue in Augustine. Um, I haven't read as much on creation, but on the Trinity and, and some of his other works, just when he's navigating doctrine, that, that shines through a lot of the times. And, and I do think it would be valuable to bring more humility into how we interpret the Bible. So moving on to get into some of Augustine's specific views, um, what was Augustine's view of the age of the earth and how did he get there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is what I address in chapter three of the book. If people want to chase this down further, they can look it up there. But essentially, Augustine doesn't take a view on the exact age of the earth. Sometimes people claim that he does because of the city of God, he dates humanity. Um, but Augustine thinks that there's an instantaneous instantaneous moment of creation in which all in which um, all of Genesis 1 happened, but he thinks that the creation of humanity is only referenced as an idea there, and it's there, uh, the actual production of Adam came subsequent in time to that initial act of creation as it's referenced in Genesis 2-7. So, and then he says immediately after dating, I think he dates humanity to be like 5,000 years old or 6,000 years old or something, going by the genealogies. Immediately after that, he says, but we don't know how much time passed between Adam and the original creation of the world. So for that reason, I feel that we can't give an exact date in terms of how old exactly Augustine thought the world is. Doubtless, he wouldn't have been thinking of it as 13 billion years because he had no reason to think that. Um, so, so sometimes young earth creationists uh, appeal to that fact as though Augustine were in their camp. All the different camps want Augustine on their team. And one of the things I try to say in the book is Augustine isn't neatly serviceable to any camp. He doesn't neatly fit into any views today. He's he's going to frustrate all of us at different points, probably. But he's definitely not on the Young Earth team on this one, because the reason he thinks about the age, the whole way he thinks about it is at odds with their view in the sense that he doesn't think the days of Genesis 1 are 24-hour periods of time. In fact, he's very strong in rejecting that and rebuking that. There were three reasons for that. Uh, one of them had to do with God's rest. He thought that this passage can't be taken literally because God does not get tired. And when, in Exodus, when it references the creation week and says God rested and refreshed himself on the Sabbath day, Augustine said, look, you, you just cannot take that literally. God does not refresh himself when he rests. Um, he also was really puzzled about points of dischronology, which means things being put out of order. So in Genesis 2, 4 says no shrub had yet appeared. Man, you can just imagine him pulling his hair out with frustration. He's going on for several pages wondering, but we've already had the plants created. Why is it saying no shrub has yet appeared? And that, and then he's noticing the word day there, which is the same Hebrew word, the word yom, that's used for the days of creation. And it says, in the day the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And he's saying, okay, the word day is being used in at least three different ways here. 24 hours, sun up to sundown, and an indeterminate period of time. And then he's, the third and big one that he really agonized over is the light before luminaries issue. Lights made on day one, sun, stars, and so forth, that give light on day four. The whole reason a day is 24 hours is because that's the amount of time it takes as the earth rotates and you get from 
the start of the break of light to one day to the next. And the sun didn't exist on those first three days. And he was saying, where did this light come from? Is it just artificially flashing on and off from some other source before the sun existed? And he really puzzled over that. So he, he didn't think, so he thought the whole creation week was an instant and it was only portrayed like that to depict God's work of creation in a sort of extended comparison to a human work week, such as the Hebrews uh, work weeks would later be structured and be given one day of rest at the end. And so he didn't think that Genesis 1 really tells us the age of the earth. Um, and he, in fact, his instincts about things like that, at one point he just says, it doesn't matter how long it took. The fact is it did begin. It's not eternal. And that's where he really put the emphasis, I think. What does Augustine say about animal death? Okay, this is another one where Augustine would not be on the young earth creationist side because whereas some people think that all animal death is bad or most animal death is bad. A lot of the young earth creationists tend to be okay with insect death and um, you know all other kinds of death of organic life, um, protists and and fungi and things like that can die and even invertebrate animals, you know, like shrimp. So a lot of young earth creationists think there's some death because death is necessary for the world to be sustainable and not become overpopulated very rapidly. So, but most young earth creationists think that vertebrate animals did not die before the fall. But Augustine uh, took what I have discovered to my surprise to be the most, the common view held also by Ambrose and Basel among the church fathers and also by other later theologians like Thomas Aquinas in the medieval era, that animal death is not only not bad, but it's actually a good thing. Um, and he had a, a various reasons for that. He thought there was a kind of beauty in the passing away of some creatures and the creating of other creatures. And he, like many, recognized that you simply can't have a finite world with no death and reproduction. At, at some point, you just run out of space. So death is one of those things that God has put in place so that the world can subsist from one generation to another without becoming massively overpopulated. But he held that there's spiritual lessons to be learned from animal death. So when it comes to crocodiles and um, uh, tigers and lions and other carnivorous animals like that, he, he said that there's things we can learn from them and that we need to be careful not to make a self-referential self-referential judgment, like just because we don't like something or it causes us pain, therefore it is evil. And he said the same thing about insects, just because something grosses you out, like maggots or worms or something like that, doesn't mean actually it's evil. We should be careful not to make those kinds of judgments and be very cautious. The metaphor he used is if you, and by the way, all this he felt very strongly about, and he emphasized it very strongly because the Manichees were saying God's world is evil. And he wanted to respond to their criticisms and say, no, God can make all these creatures, including vultures, including ants, including lizards, and they're not bad. They may be unpleasant at times to us, but they're not evils. And he used the metaphor of uh, if you are a lay person who walks into a mechanics workshop and you don't know what you're doing and you cut yourself on one of the instruments, um, that hurts, but you shouldn't say that the instrument is evil because you simply misused the instrument. And that's a very powerful metaphor, I think. He's, he's trying to caution these what he saw as very rash judgments. Um, just because something is unpleasant doesn't mean it's necessarily evil. This is another way Augustine, I think, helps us. It, he just pushes us to think through things very much more carefully. I've met a lot of Christians who think all pain is necessarily evil. But Augustine would remind us that the curse to Eve says, I will increase your pain in childbirth. Well, you can't increase something that doesn't exist yet. Pain, uh, Eve must have known what the word pain meant. Pain is a good thing. Uh, it exists for a reason. There's a reason why, that, why we feel pain. Now, obviously, not all pain, that doesn't mean all pain is good either. It just means we need to be careful in making judgments that all pain is bad. 
So Augustine has a lot to say about this. He, he ultimately, the label I give for his view is called perspectival prejudice, which simply is a way to say we're prejudiced because we only see the parts. So he, Augustine basically said, if we could see things from God's point of view, if we could see everything, we would understand that he has a reason for all the things he has made and that we shouldn't be quick to sit in judgment on them. So he, he did hold that animal death is not only not bad, but actually a good. He called it a, a temporal beauty, which is a way of saying it's a beauty that unfolds through time. And he compared it to the four seasons of the year, winter, fall, spring, and summer. And he said, just as there's a beauty in the passing of one thing to another, and the fact that it doesn't always look the same, so there's a beauty in the, the fact that the world unfolds. And it means God can create more creatures. And it means more things can come into being. And there's a kind of beauty in the, the turning from one thing to the next. And so uh, as much as it might not, I mean, I have to say, if, if someone out there is listening to this and they're frustrated with Augustine at this point, I would say, I feel your pain. Um, I get it. I have emotional struggles myself with the idea of animal pain and animal death. Uh, so I'm not trying to be unsympathetic. At the same time, I actually think what Augustine says about this really is a, an appropriate caution for us. At the very least, we shouldn't go around boldly pronouncing, as I have heard some some well-known young earth creationists do, that if you think you know God can create the animal death you're, before the fall, you're undermining the gospel and you're impugning the character of God. And they have strong criticisms, some of them, about this. And I think Augustine's cautions are important because uh, uh, those claims need to be checked, I think. This this next question, I mean, <clears throat> obviously Augustine never interacted with modern evolutionary science, so it's somewhat of a hypothetical question. But um, if Augustine were alive today, how would he interact with evolutionary science? And then piggybacking off of that, and if, if you forget the second question, I'll ask it later. But what, according to Augustine, must be believed about the creation and historicity of Adam and Eve? Okay. All right. Well, um, for the first question about evolutionary science, Many people have appealed to Augustine and uh, specifically an aspect of his thought called the seminal reasons, which I'll define in just a moment, in support of evolution. So just the, this isn't my claim. I'm just observing this as a historical fact. When people like John Zom and the Catholic Church and today someone like Alistair McGrath are seeking to provide a theological framework for how we might understand evolution as a means of creation for, that God uses, Augustine is commonly used for that. Now, the reason that claim is made is not that Augustine affirmed evolution per se, but rather that there's aspects of his thought that are sympathetic to it and provide principles by which we can understand it. So specifically, the claim of seminal reasons, this is a principle of Augustine's thought that basically uh, has to, and this was a term he borrowed from earlier philosophy, but it has to do with how um, God implanted certain seeds into creation at the initial creation that then unfold over time. And his metaphor for this is a tree, which the seed goes into the ground. And then over time, through a natural process, it, un it grows through water and sunlight and soil and so forth. And yet God still made the tree. Um, so it's not as though God has to create everything at once. Uh, so Augustine thinks God creates in a, in a multiplicity of ways. He creates directly and indirectly. He creates in a de novo way and through processes and secondary causes. And that way, if you're on a hike and you see a beautiful tree and the leaves are changing colors and it's the fall and it's absolutely gorgeous, like you guys have in the Midwest, unfortunately, out here, we don't get too many leaves changing colors, and I miss that, but uh, you can say God made that tree. God is the author of that tree. He's the creator of that tree, even though he didn't just go poof from nothing. So that's the idea. And um, Augustine affirmed the fixity of species, which means he thought, like basically all pre-modern people thought, that animal species didn't evolve from one kind to another. But this idea... And the way he cashes it out, I can understand how people appeal to him 
to be favorable to evolution. It is consistent with evolutionary ways of thinking broadly considered. Because what evolution is saying is basically God can do it through the process. It doesn't matter how it happens as much as what it ends up in. And God can guide the process. So um, the question that you asked specifically was what, how would Augustine interact with it? Based upon his humility, and another thing I haven't really talked about much is his humility before what we would call science. He's got a great respect for what we call science, what he would have thought of kind of like as a natural philosophy. He's really, really interested in Christians taking seriously the claims of science, much more so than evangelicals. I tend to think that most evangelicals are a little bit more dismissive of science or suspicious of science than Augustine was. Augustine recognized science can go wrong. It's not infallible, but he was very respectful of, of science. And he said, basically, you know, make sure you do your homework before you just spout off about how science is wrong about something, because we can do a lot of damage to the credibility of our faith when we do that. So based upon that, which I haven't really unpacked, but I talk about at great length in chapter two, the, his humility before science, and then based upon his framework of understanding the nature of God's creation, I think Augustine would at least be open to consider the claims of evolution. And I think that it would come down to, well, what does the data suggest? Um, I, in other words, I don't think he'd be a kind of knee-jerk dismissive response to it. Um, but I also don't think he would just kind of go along with whatever. I think he would be very careful and take it one step at a time. And obviously it's impossible to kind of know this for sure. We're, we're doing it's kind of a thought experiment of what Augustine would do, but um, that's my sense about that. And then the second part of this is on Adam and Eve. Augustine, to my surprise, did consider the possibility that Adam and Eve were mere symbols. Now, he ultimately rejected that view, but it's interesting that he was aware of it. In book eight of the literal commentary on Genesis, he basically says there's three views on Adam and Eden. Either, number one, they're a real guy in a real place. Number two, they're just symbols or types of humanity and heaven, respectively. Or number three, both. A real person, a real place, and a type. And he says, I think it's number three. I think they're both real, historical, person and place, and a type of heaven. But I think he's interacting with Origen, the other church father. And he says, basically, there's people who are not like the Manichaeans. They reverence our sacred scriptures. They are among our uh, the people of God. But they don't think Adam was a real person. And he interacts with that view. He categorizes that as within the parameters of orthodoxy, to my surprise. So Augustine affirmed a historical Adam and a historical Eve. He's pretty vigorous in his opposition to those who want to deny the historicity of Adam. But he doesn't see that as a heresy per se. And he also says at one point at the end of the first section of book eight of the literal commentary, if that turns out to be right, then we'd have to find a way to understand the sacred scripture, how it can be interpreted like that, which is so interesting. So he's, he's, he's all that is to say he's much more open-minded than you might expect for a fourth century, early fifth century guy. Um, but he affirms the, historicity of Adam and Eve, and he does think that's important. And in the book, I go through and talk about what he thinks of the nature of Adam and Eve, how they were created, what their life was. He's got some odd views. He's open to Adam being made as an infant rather than made as an adult, things like that that are surprising. But his treatment, I find very balanced, very helpful, and very fair. Gavin, what resources beside your own about or by Augustine would you recommend to the person wanting to learn more about Augustine and his teachings? And then after that, uh, do you have any encouragement you'd like to give our listeners pertaining to Augustine, creation, or anything else? Well, I would really encourage people to read Augustine himself. There's lots of great books about Augustine. And, you know, Peter Brown's biography is a long, it's, I found it a tough book to get through. It's a, so detailed, but it's a great biography. Um, there's lots of great books about his theology, but there's just no substitute. And I've just found a lot of people don't read, they're intimidated to read the old theologians, but he's not that hard to read. I really would encourage people to pick up the confessions and maybe another work too. Um, the City of God would be great, though it's very long. 
something like on Christian teaching or the Incridion would be a great thing. I, I, I don't think people would find it too challenging to get through. It's a little shorter and, and um, easier to get through than a lot of contemporary books. So I really would encourage people to read Augustine. Uh, his confessions, there's nothing like it for both the literary qualities of it, the spiritual qualities of it, and the theological qualities of it. All three of those things make combined to make it just a, a, a an absolutely profound book that every Christian should consider reading. Um, I let's see the uh, the other part was about just any encouragements. Um, I would say that I, I will share this encouragement in the in the way of personal testimony. I have personally agonized my way through studying the doctrine of creation. I've been surprised at how my own convictions have twisted and turned over the years as I've just continued to wrestle with it. I'm not addressing this topic from the spirit of feeling like I've got it all figured out. I'm a seeker of truth, and I'm open to course corrections at any moment. I'm very concerned about this area because of its divisiveness. And to be blunt, there's some people who make it more divisive than it needs to be. There's some people who say our view is the Christian view, essentially, and that's not helpful. Um, I'm also concerned about it because there are uh, apologetics issues. I know lots of people who lose their faith in connection to issues related to science and faith and creation. And I could share my testimony of saying the more I've pressed into this, though it has not been without anxiety at times, and though I've agonized my way through it at times, not knowing how it's going to unfold, um, the more I've pressed into it, the more I've become convinced that Christianity offers the most beautiful and the most compelling account of creation and why our world is here. How is it that it came into existence? How is it that it's so exquisitely well-tuned to be capable of life? And what's the most satisfying explanation for what this world is doing here? And I believe the Christian answer to that, an an all-powerful and all-loving creator God who is himself outside of the creation, transcendent beyond it, who willed to bring it into being purposefully, is the most compelling and the most satisfying answer to that question. And I think Augustine's been one way that it's helped me see that. And I would just encourage people who are wrestling with this topic to keep exploring and keep pushing and keep studying with it. Because I think they'll uh, become convinced of that as well if they keep wrestling with it. And I think Augustine would be a great resource for people in that process. Amen. Amen. Well, Gavin, we want to thank you for taking uh, this amount of time to discuss Augustine creation, and thank you for your encouraging words. That was an encouragement. So thank you for coming on today, brother. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. And to our listeners, we want to wish you grace and peace. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.